this morning I was tempted to change my lesson from God calling us out of darkness into his light, (laughs) but uh, I decided I better stay with the lesson that I had prepared this morning. Last week, we began a series of lessons on In the Valley of Elah. The Philistines and God's people were encamped on opposing mountains with a valley in between them. And David, leading the charge for the children of God, went into the valley and he defeated Goliath, who was a representative of the Philistines. And we made the point in that lesson that many times we each find ourselves being challenged in life and facing battles which are very difficult for us to face. And if I were to ask you this morning, what is one of the greatest battles that you face daily? And I'm sure many of you would talk about various kinds of temptations. But when you get down to it, one of the most difficult, one of the battles that all of us must face is that of trying to control or tame our tongue. Now, some of you might say, but that's not really a big problem for me. But for some of you, I want you to ask yourself, how often do you get in trouble with your tongue? You may say, well, with my husband or my wife, that's a rather frequent event. Or with my family, my brothers, my sisters, I often find myself saying things I ought not When you go to James 1 and verse 26, there's a litmus test. Whether or not our religion is useful, beneficial, and real. James writes, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. It's vain. Your religion is not helping you if it is not changing who you are and how you live and the way you talk. What I want to do is I want to take James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, to use that as, to use the figure that we've been using, a battle manual. For our dealing with our tongues, how is it that we can engage the battle of trying to bridle our tongues and do it so properly? So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at, number one, the teaching tongue. Verse one, he talks about the tongue which teaches, and that applies to everyone. I know you may think that only applies to the preacher or the teachers of the class, but in reality, that applies to us all. Number two, I want to talk about a tamed tongue. And I know some people have in their mind when they start talking about a tongue that is tamed is one that doesn't say anything, but that's not necessarily the case either. A tamed tongue is one where you bring it under control to the point where it is useful and helpful to the thing that you say, good things, positive things, upbuilding things, rather than ones that are negative and ones that are harmful and hurtful. And then finally, the truthful tongue, the one that tells the truth, it's not deceitful, and the one that speaks the truth as God would have it spoken. 
Let's begin by reading chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to put it on the screen, but I do recommend that you have your own copy of God's Word so that you can make notes, that you can have some time to be able to reflect on this at some point in the future. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive the stricter judgment. Now think with me for just a few moments about what James just said. Why not many teachers? Is James here deciding that it's important to discourage people from teaching? Is he wanting a a generation to come up and say, it's not my job to teach. It's not my place to teach. Well, let me suggest to you that all should mature to the point that they should be able to teach. Now someone says, but I know that I'll never be able to stand before an audience and speak because I'm too fearful of that. A person says, I'll never be able to go into a Bible class and open a Bible because I'm just not that intelligent. I don't have the speaking ability. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who have learned something and are able to communicate that to someone else. Like a mother or a sister who looks at her daughter, maybe even her son, or maybe even her brother, her sister, and says, let me show you how to make this spaghetti that I make. And you add this spice, and you add this kind of sauces, and this is the way that you make it. And you say, oh, now I see. Or maybe a man who's looking at his son, or perhaps even his daughter, and says, let me show you how you change a tire on the car, how you raise the jack and how you remove the lug nuts. And here's how you do it. Do you realize, spiritually speaking, that's what the Bible calls teaching? When we take what we have learned and what we have done and we communicate that to others. In Hebrews 5, verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. You see, the problem that is being described in Hebrews 5 is that people are incapable of teaching because they haven't matured to that level. But you see, there's such an awesome responsibility in being a teacher. And what makes that responsibility so awesome is the fact that you are guiding the minds of those that are listening to you whether it's one-on-one or whether it is one speaking to several, you have to realize that you are representing God's message. It's not your message. It's God's message. And you have to be careful to reproduce it accurately. If someone tells you something and says, I want you to take this word and tell it to another over here, you need to be respectful of that message to say, I've got to communicate it accurately to that person. When I go to the Old Testament, particularly to the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who were contemporaries, Jeremiah in Judah, Ezekiel in Babylon, and they were dealing with the people, and yet they were also dealing with false prophets. In Ezekiel 13, verses 6 and 7, they envisioned futility and a false divination, saying, Thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope that their word may be confirmed. 
Have you not seen a futile vision? Have you not spoken a false divination? You say, the Lord says, but I have not spoken. I've got to be careful that when I represent God's word before you, that I'm representing what God said, not what I hope or think might be true. You have to be careful lest you lead others astray for profit. The truth is, is that there are many people who are using their tongues for whatever benefit that they might derive from it. Some financial benefit, others for popularity. In Titus 1 verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. They're more interested in how others will accept them and perceive them and reward them. We must never bow to peer pressure. You see, we live in a world today that's telling us that the things that are found in Scripture are not correct, that they're illogical, that they do not make sense, that they're bigoted. And people would have us believe that we need to be quiet on moral and social issues. Oh, you shouldn't address things like abortion. You shouldn't talk about sexual issues because those are personal choices. Galatians 1 and verse 10, Paul said, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So if you're going to speak, you're not trying to please men. You're trying to represent God's message accurately, carefully to other people. You also have to appreciate the great power that's in that spoken word. You could look at it from many ways, but Proverbs chapter 18 verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Some people don't realize that the words they say to a little child out here can either encourage them or discourage them. You have to be careful that the words that you say to someone else are accepted as they were intended by God. He goes on to say, then those who love it will eat the fruit of it. That is, that if I, if I love doing what's right, I'm going to enjoy the benefits of that as well. And I want you to think, we're, we're engaging in battle. And how will we use our tongues as we try to bridle our tongue? Well, the first thing I would stress is, is that you've got to know what you're going to teach. I can't enter into a teaching situation without having first studied to learn to know and understand. In John chapter 3 verse 10, Jesus is discussing with Nicodemus the fact that a man must be born again. And Nicodemus is all confused. And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Can you imagine a person teaching your children math and not understanding addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division? Can you imagine a person teaching God's Word being totally incapable of discerning what the Bible has to say? Second thing you have to do, you have to be deliberative in your speech. That is, you think about what you're going to say before you say it. 
That means a person has to be careful. James 1 and verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. When you think before you speak, you plan what it is you're going to say. I don't know what most people think that public speakers do. I know some people just assume that people get up and speak off the top of their head and that whatever comes out of their mouths is just what's sort of rambling around in their heads. That's not the way most gospel preachers do it. They plan, they prepare, they discern what it is that they need to say and how they need to say it. And a man who's going to do so properly also has to check his motivations. Why do I say what I say? Even if I say what is the truth, can I do so in a way that's unacceptable to God? Philippians 1, verse 15, Paul said, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. Are there people who preach the gospel? Are there people who teach God's word because they love people and they will love God? Absolutely. Are there people, on the other hand, though, who do not love God and do not love their fellow man? They have this selfish ambition. Yes, there are. And one must be consistent with what he preaches. People do not like a hypocrite. They don't like someone who says, Do as I say, not as I do. In Romans 2 and verse 1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man. You whoever judge another, for in what you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And then he drops down to verse 21 and he says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You see, as James is trying to persuade us how to control ourselves and our speaking, he's saying, Be careful when you teach because you're going to be judged by that. You'll receive a stricter judgment. Number two, let's look at verses now, two through eight. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in the word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body also, or also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put horses' mouths, bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, that we may turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are large and driven by fierce winds, They are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and a bird and reptile and creature and of the sea is tamed by man, and has been tamed by mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. 
It is an unruly evil. It is full of deadly poison. Here's something we all need to understand. Everyone fails to always control their tongue. That's the reason why I began with this, because there are some of us who struggle with some things but not with others. But the tongue is a battle, according to James, that every one of us face. Now, some may face it more than others, but we all struggle with it. It's a battle that we all have to face. And I know there's some people who have this attitude then, well, if I can't tame my tongue, then why should I try? It's just like people who would say, I can't not sin. You know, Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if I can't avoid sin, then I'm just going to throw up my hands and quit and just enjoy it. Some people have this idea, I can't control my tongue, so I'm not going to try. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. John writes, My little children, these things I write unto you, that you may not sin. Yet if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The idea is that we don't want to sin, even though we know we're all going to, at one point, stumble and fall. Will I make a mistake with my tongue? Will I say things I ought not say? Will I say it sometimes as I ought not say it? I will, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't try. James illustrates that some difficult things can be controlled. He talks about various kinds of animals that have been tamed by mankind. And he also talks about things like ships. I think of these huge horses, much larger than a man, two, three times a man's size. And yet that horse can be controlled by a man with just a little small bit in the mouth. You can turn the horse right or left, stop, go. You take a, one of these huge ships. A little small rudder can turn the huge ship around. The tongue is such a small thing, but it is powerful and it can be controlled. But I've got to recognize there's times when it is more challenging and more difficult than others. Now I want you to think in yourself, when's the hardest time for you to control your tongue? Most of us, it's probably when we're angry at someone else. When someone else has said something or done something that evokes a strong emotion within us. And that's the reason why in Psalm 39 and verse 1, David will talk about how he has to work hard when the wicked is before him. He says, I said I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I don't know about you, but when there are those people in front of me whose seemingly desire and goal is to say something negative about the Lord, about His church, about what is right versus wrong, I sometimes 
have some very strong passions and emotions there. And I want you to understand that it's it's tough sometimes to do that. But you don't have to respond. Someone says, oh, but I, I, I need to say something. Not always. Let me give you an illustration, first of all, from Jeremiah 18, verse 18. They said, come let us devise plans against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. Jeremiah did not respond. In that way he was like the Lord. Do you remember when our Lord was being tried? How they made all these charges against him and he didn't say a word? To the point that they went back and quoted Isaiah 53 that like a lamb that is dumb is led to the slaughter so he opened not his mouth. Sometimes the best thing to do is to say nothing. Sometimes the right way to respond is to be better than our enemies. Proverbs 15 verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Sometimes we have to respond with kindness to those who are wicked. Oh, and that's really, really tough. A person also has to be careful when they're making promises. You know, many times throughout history, Man has been faced with a real challenge. Sometimes it may be sickness in your family. I learned yesterday that my college roommate, the best man at my wedding, and I was the best man at his wedding, coded at the hospital in Fayette. They came out and told his wife that he didn't make it. And then the nurse came out right after that and said, we've got a pulse. He's in the hospital in Tuscaloosa right now. Be very easy for people to say, Lord, if you'll just let him live, I'll promise I'll do this, I'll do that. You see, people sometimes want to make vows, they want to make promises without thinking them through. In Judges chapter 11, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If indeed you will deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, that I will surely that it will surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And his daughter came out. Surely he should have thought a little bit more before he made a vow like that. Don't promise things that you can't fulfill, that you don't know that you can do. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, talks about going into a city, buying and selling and making a profit. He says, you do not know what will happen on tomorrow. What is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll both do this and that. Our problem sometimes is, is that we don't think before we make promises. We don't make plans before we make promises. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Be careful what you say. 
And then in verses 4 and 5, he talks about when you make a vow to God, don't delay to pay it. God doesn't take pleasure in fools. Now let's take the third part of this lesson. Let's go to verses 9 through 12 and talk about the true tongue. He says, with it, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter at the same opening? Can a fig tree and a my brethren bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. You see, what he's addressing is the inconsistency that you and I have. We will gladly sing, oh, how I love Jesus. But the second verse is, oh, how I hate my neighbor. In 1 John 4, 20 and 21, if one, someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. You see, what James was dealing with is people who felt like their relationship with God was fine, but their relationship with their brethren was not fine to the point where they would speak good things about God but wicked, evil, mean things about their brethren. Of course, he also has in mind this thing called flattery. That is where you speak something nice to someone to their face, but behind their back, what you are doing is saying other things. Psalm 55, 21 David said the words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. In Proverbs 29, 5. The man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Luke 6.45, what you find is many times what comes out of our mouths is what's already in our hearts. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. The Christian will not only be judged by what he does, but by what he says. Here we are, we're engaged in a battle to do the right thing, to say the right thing. In Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, every idle word men may speak, they'll give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. If we were honest with ourselves... The truth is most of us are facing a giant in our lives. We're facing a challenge with our tongues. Oh, it may appear to be small, but 
James says, you see how great a forest a fire kindles. You can take a spark. The spark burns. Soon it's out of control. Let me tell you what I have observed. I've observed in congregations a person can say one mean, harsh, ugly thing. It's interpreted that way by someone else. And then their tongues start talking about the other person who said it. And pretty soon this thing just starts growing and becomes a forest fire. And then it becomes so out of control, it seems as if you'll never get the fire put out. We're facing that among ourselves. I want to end with a passage which I think is really valuable. Proverbs 16.23 says, The heart of the wise teaches his mouth and adds learning to his lips. The heart of the wise teaches his mouth. You want to be a wise person? Have a good heart. Say the right things. Think about the right things. Now, in just a few moments, we're going to sing the invitation song. And it'll be an encouragement for those who are not Christians to come forward and become a Christian. And part of that involves your believing that Jesus is the Christ, repenting of the sins that you have committed, and then using your mouth to say what the eunuch said in Acts 8.37, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the good confession. And then to be baptized for the remission of your sins. If that's what you need to do this morning, we urge you, we plead with you, we beg you, make that decision today. Make it now. And if you're a child of God who needs the prayers of this congregation, we urge you, we also beseech you as well. Would you come as together we stand and sing?